Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself if you dare. Come inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness has found you. Well, hello there. If this is your first time tuning into the Horror Hill, I highly recommend listening to last week's episode for chapters one through chapters four of Scott Wilson's Floridian narco epic... The pill mills. Otherwise, far be it from me to keep you waiting. So, without further delay, I give you chapters five through chapters nine and the thrilling conclusion of The Pill Mills. <laughs> Chapter 5 
One would think that anyone in their right mind would have had enough at this point, but there were two issues in my life. Number one, I needed a fuck ton of drugs. Eight milligrams of Xanax a day, which came out to three pills that would be five dollars a piece on the street. Ninety milligrams of Roxy at one dollar per milligram. And that was just to maintain, not to get high. After what I had seen, I absolutely needed to get high. I had no other way of handling stress, and that was a lot of stress. I could stop thinking about how I had seen three of them at the beach, not just one. So I ended up crashing with Debbie for a while. It was a pretty nice pad anyways. She was in no mood for work either, so George ended up sending in goons to cover for both of us. George seemed strangely happy after the incident, even more relaxed than when I had met him. He didn't exactly open up about what he knew, but I told him what I thought it was, and I noticed a look of recognition on his face when I said it was a Stegini. He smirked and said that he was glad there was a way to get rid of them, but he had only heard fleeting rumors about their existence. I didn't feel safe asking him about any other weird things. I was getting the impression he was never going to tell me anything he didn't think I already knew to begin with. I had the impression that he was lying, but he casually dropped that he didn't mind me staying over as long as I needed, seeing as he always had protection. Right. Now, two reasons this asshole owned me. I spent a week recovering by narking out on a colossal supply of pretty much every abusable substance known to man from shrooms to propofol. Three days into the process, Dave dropped off a handgun for me. Someone had gone through all the loopholes for me, he said, and sure enough, the papers that came with it had my picture and said my name. I daydreamed about taking the small, gray, 9 millimeter gun to a range before remembering that I didn't actually know anything about guns and putting the thing in one of my bags. I hoped I would never need it. Then I lurched towards a computer to see if I could find any more information on Native American legends that might be more than legends. Before going back to work in the first time in about eight days, I thought about stopping at my small one-bedroom hut. It didn't sound like a great idea, and I doubted something like whatever Cynthia was would just leave me alone. I eventually called my landlord and told him I didn't feel safe in my apartment anymore, and that I was giving my notice. I hadn't bothered looking for a new place yet. But I never wanted to see that one or Debbie's place again. I booked a room in the brightly lit, expensive part of Palm Beach before going there one last time to pick up my drugs and anything else I might need. I looked forward to shopping in Marshalls for new clothes. I took an extra buttload of drugs my first day back to brace myself. No one seemed to give a shit. And Dave had kept an additional guy in the office, Steve to hold down the fort while Debbie took some time to think about shit and recover. The next day at work was a typical day pumping tons of narcotics into the ignorant arms of people with southern accents everywhere. It was jarring to be around the smell and to see the stained light pour through the heavily tinted windows instead of enjoying the fresh air and bright blue sky that I had relished the day before. About halfway through the day, at around ten or eleven, a beautiful old lady with long, flowing white hair and a blue Fleetwood Mac t-shirt came in with a group I was familiar with. 
She had piercing blue eyes you could practically see from across the street. She was new and filled out her patient packet while listening to music on an old cassette player. When she was finished, she bounded up to her group's ringleader, the junkie who fronted the money and took a serious amount of their pills, and he sighed before handing her what looked like a baggie filled with pills. She took them and barely hid them behind her cassette player before heading straight to the bathroom, presumably to cook and inject before her doctor's appointment. No more than two minutes later, and a drop-dead gorgeous young girl with bright strawberry blonde hair, shocking blue eyes, and a face full of freckles and the same Fleetwood Mac shirt came out, dancing slightly as she walked. She was radiantly beautiful. I was numb to the fact that something weird was going on. Besides, she seemed pretty high, but in a good mood. I watched her, noticing that shirt looked like it was brand new. She bounded up to the small stretch of the window that wasn't covered in tinting and plopped down in an empty seat. She stared out happily while sitting next to a group of confused addicts. After just a moment, the beautiful blonde girl suddenly went stiff. As if shocked by electricity, her mouth open and slack. With her eyes wide, staring in the direction she came, the bathroom. She made a sudden gesture to the bathroom, something that looked like desperation, and then went still. A scream shot out of the bathroom the patients use. I looked towards the bathroom, but when I looked back to the window, the young girl was gone. The old lady with the bright blue eyes and matching Fleetwood Mac shirt had overdosed. Everyone in her group ran before the AMTs even came to get her corpse off the toilet. I wondered if anyone would be at her funeral. I didn't bother saying anything to Debbie. I spoke to Jessica, the girl who used to work in our medication room, doling out medication into pill bottles for the doctors to sign off on so that we didn't have to hire legitimate pharmacists. Jessica was hired under an absurd legal loophole that allowed doctors to let regular staff dispense medication under insanely flimsy protocol, which we took advantage of so that we didn't need to hire anyone who might know what the fuck they were doing. Because of that, one of George's friends took the liberty of hiring a beautiful, surprisingly healthy-looking blonde, whose only previous work experience had been working at Hooters and other fine Floridian establishments. She used an incredible array of machines that automatically sorted the pills by weight, measuring them out perfectly every time. I mean, as far as we knew. The doctors then had to check the bottle and sign off on it, and that was enough to replace a professional with an advanced degree who might be interested in not letting those drugs hit the street. She had the largest room to herself, with several massive vaults containing enormous stockpiles of medication that the doctors ordered in their own names so that they could self-dispense. We never talked, aside from coming and going. She didn't make much of an effort to hide her disgust for us drug addicts and never left the medication room unless absolutely necessary, and we didn't blame her at all. I remember her saying that when she went to high school in Hope Sound that she had heard of a girl who was attacked by something from the air. I remember a note of disgust in her voice when I talked to her, the sound of a girl who was grossed out by me but trying to be polite. Hello? Hey, 
I need to ask you a question, and it's kind of important. She sighed into the phone and sounded instantly disappointed. All right. What is it? I need to ask about that girl who disappeared in Hope Sound. She didn't disappear. She was killed. Some of my friends got a phone call from her the night she didn't come home and said that she told them something came out of the sky and attacked her. She said she couldn't move her arm. The cops wouldn't even listen to them. She sounded instantly angry, as if I had challenged her belief that it was anything other than a legitimate concern. I was massively relieved to hear something other than, we don't know. Her name was Claire Alyssa Redding, and her friend was Janet. They never found either body, but I was there when Claire called us. She said something attacked her, and she needed to get to a hospital, but she couldn't get through to 911. She said this as if it was the most important bit of information available. Did you remember them saying she said anything else? Anything at all. Someone I know may have gotten attacked by something near downtown Lake Worth, and they don't want to go to the police about it. She said she was digging for something when it attacked her. Grace, our friend, said she was doing a project for school. She had camped out on the beach, and she said her car was torn up or something. They never found her car, either. Only windshield glass and parts of the door. One of her friends went missing at the same time, and they thought it was just a stunt because they both had been arrested a couple of times. For a quick moment, the mental image of the sorrowful father driving away in a critically wounded old Ford popped into my mind. Did she describe what was attacking her at all? Was there anyone who had any guesses? At this, she turned around away from her desk in narcotic counting equipment. She spoke with a conspiratorial tone in her voice. The cops said it looked like she ran away and that they couldn't find anything. But that was bullshit. My friends and I went back to the place she was digging when she called us. She was doing an assignment for class on Pottery Shard in Hope Sound. There were tons of Native American things buried up there. A whole city used to be there before the Seminole even came to Florida. We found blood, some ripped pieces of her clothes, and some of her stuff in a tree. The cops said that they searched the crime scene and found nothing and wouldn't even talk to us after that. She had friends, though, and they thought something jumped on her car roof and attacked her. That might be why she thought something came out of the sky. A lot of shattered glass was in the parking lot and a piece from the car door. The realization that this girl was doing anything involved with Native Americans did not sit well with me. My stomach lurched. I'm sorry to hear that. It sounds like the cops just ignored it all. I said this in the most sincere tone I could summon, purely to remind her that I was on her side. She straightened up at that. I wish. One of them kept coming around to my friend Grace. He was one of the guys who was there when we called them the first time, who told us that she had probably gone missing. He kept bothering her and trying to get her to go clubbing with him. She was like 16 and he knew that. But he kept calling Grace. When it got too much and Grace called the police to file a report about it, they said they had never heard of the guy, and that only two cops went to talk to us. Which is bullshit. Creepy dudes weren't exactly rare in South Florida, and this kind of thing was hardly unheard of. She seemed shocked by it, and I had heard a thousand stories of cops trying to get laid with more attractive perps, and they really stuck together. You could count them to cover for each other before they even knew what they were covering for. Listen, 
I need to ask you something else. What kind of person was she? Was she like us? Did she party at all? Maybe there's a small chance someone me or Debbie knows might have known her back in the day. Asking her whether or not her dead friend was a junkie wasn't easy. Yeah, um, maybe. Why? It might be helpful to know if she was clean or not. This thing may have attacked my friend because of it. She... probably wasn't. She did hang out with Grace, who used to do stuff whenever she got the chance. They'd gone down to Miami together a bunch of times. The week before she got dead, they all went down to party at South Beach with fake IDs, but had to leave early. Her friends, Grace and Chris, are still trying to look into it. Do you want their numbers? If you know something similar, they might want to hear it. I wondered if she had guessed that maybe something not entirely natural had taken her friend. Because she had a strange look on her face but seemed excited about connecting me to her friends. I said yes and wondered if perhaps we were just sharing a hallucination before remembering the bloodstains in front of George's place. I wondered if the police had the same nervous look to them, like they wanted nothing to do with the case. After the latest bird-watching incident, I was suddenly more aware of every death, every creepy story a patient muttered. One patient got pissed and started screaming when he realized the cocaine his piss test was showing his positive form would delay him getting his medication until he watched a stupid tape on the dangers of mixing drugs. About 20 minutes. Patience was never their strong suit. It was what looked like a college kid, except a hell of a lot grimier with greasy brown hair that was matted to his head and a trucker hat he took off but kept in his hands. Aside from the wear and tear from heavy narcotics use, I didn't think he looked old enough to drink. He was wearing oil and paint-stained blue jeans and a black and neon shirt that was torn under the arms, and his habit made him look worn down. He looked malnourished, with hollow cheeks and bones pointing at the back of his skin. Like most patients, he looked like he never had any luck to run out to begin with. Keeping Aaron from turning him into a fine red paste wouldn't be easy, and the patient just did not seem to realize that it was time to get polite, not curse the giant multicolored muscle guy out. I was feeling generous, so I told him I would handle it and push the kid through to his appointment. I remembered how bitchy I got when I was out. People act weird when they need drugs. At about noon, the 18-year-old kid had finished his appointment and was overdosing big time in the middle of the parking lot. His friends brought him in and a doctor rushed out to meet him with naloxone. Every junkie in the waiting room clapped when they realized he was going to be alright. Four hours later, I got a phone call from a sheriff. He overdosed again, this time for good. His friends were actually much more responsible than normal and tried to go to an ER even stayed there after they realized he was dead. After his system was clean from the naloxone, the cravings kicked into high gear again. He must have been as sober as a judge after the stuff, because he apparently went through a huge part of his pills and OD'd. This happens more frequently than anyone would like to admit. At the time, I was mainly concerned with whether or not the police would be in the clinic again, but they decided not to. I googled the name... 
According to his friend's Facebook posts, he had just gotten back from the army and got hooked from a genuine back injury while on duty and couldn't live with the pain. Or get better with anything the VA was willing to do. I pulled the file, but didn't feel the need to let Debbie know. After work that day, I decided I didn't want to be around anyone. I called the small hotel I was booked at. The Hotel Flagler off of Vernia Street to double-check my booking, and leaving George's place was a nerve-wracking relief. He had at least five goons there, all in brightly colored shirts with elaborate tribal or floral designs. I was both uncomfortable sleeping in the same house as them, and very comfortable knowing that they doubled their numbers in the face of something that would scare the shit out of most people. The Aryan Brotherhood is less than scum, but holy shit, does it understand violence. Debbie hadn't shown up to work for half a month at that point, and had taken to not getting dressed in the morning to begin with. After work, I went to George's place and began to gather the stuff that I had been using as a bug-out bag, including my new gun, which was in a case in my duffel bag. The Hotel Flagler was located just west of the intercoastal waterway that separates Palm Beach proper from the much larger and more heavily populated West Palm Beach, where us poor folk live. Built in the 1920s, it was cheap and used to be used for free housing for the poor until it was repaired and turned into a luxury boutique hotel much later. It was just inland, right near Clematis and City Place, the two party destinations of the area. I wouldn't have armed criminals guarding me, but the amount of people in the area was reassuring. Before checking in, I went to the seawall that separates the land from the waterway. I decided to call Grace and Chris, Jessica's friends from high school whose number she had given to me. A tired-sounding man with a slight Spanish accent answered the phone. Hello? It sounded more like aloe, and the lack of Appalachian twang in the voice was strangely reassuring. Hi. I'm sorry to bother you, but my name is Wilkes. I'm a co-worker of Jessica Grover. I need to ask you about two friends of yours that, uh, that disappeared during high school. I left some space around the word disappeared, hoping he would notice that I didn't think she disappeared either. Alyssa and Janet. The voice had a matter-of-fact tone to it, but was still listening. Yes. Something happened recently. We think it may have been the same thing. I was wondering if maybe we could meet sometime and talk about it. Maybe with Grace? You need to listen to me. Make sure to tell Jessica too. Grace is dead. He sounded very stern. I'm... I... I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. He cut me off right away. She died months ago. So if you see her, or if she contacts you, you need to run. Don't say a word to her. Not a single word. To her, or that cop. I listened as he told me a place we could meet the following day, between where he lived in Miami and West Palm, a pier in Fort Lauderdale. He told me not to call him again and asked me to tell Jessica the same before hanging up. Hey. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Chapter 6 The next day at work, I felt almost invigorated. I actually felt like going for a jog for the first time since middle school. But it was early, and I was worried about being eviscerated. The conversation with Chris was both better and worse than I expected. I guess I can't really expect the guy to tell me, don't worry, it was a junky prank after all. The pier where he asked me to meet him was located at the Fort Lauderdale Beach Park, an area about 40 minutes south of my location on I-95. It was a nice area to live, but it bordered Sunrise and Hialeah, which are extremely low-income, diverse neighborhoods. When people are being polite, they call them colorful, which is technically as well as figuratively accurate, as the homes and businesses in the area tend to be painted a shocking variety of colors, all muted by the grime of South Florida. Part of me was actually looking forward to it. The meeting spot was in Fort Lauderdale at the beach park there, but I was looking forward to getting Mofongo for dinner in Hialeah because of the proximity to a particularly incredible restaurant. El Rinconcito de Santa Barbara. The other part of me was focusing on the mofongo, just so that I wouldn't have to think about what the meeting was about. Since Christmas, I had spent my time listening to every single neurotic patient story I possibly could. 99% of them were about some other junkie who stole from them or performed some kind of miracle of getting drugs or money. Every once in a while, however, I would hear mumbling about someone disappearing the cops acting strange, and I wondered if it was just the hazard of the trade, or something else, something horribly wrong. Because I had been getting paid to sit around at George's and do drugs, I was placed at the front desk when I got back. My job was essentially pointless anyway, so I didn't argue with Dave when he called and told me. That morning, a couple of junkies brought in a kid again. It wasn't every day this happened, but it did happen. And even the drug dealers were usually disgusted. Or at least they acted that way. Scum like us usually get uppity at child abuse so that we can tell ourselves. Well, at least we're not like those animals. The woman could have been anywhere between her mid-thirties and late-fifties. She had bleached blonde hair that looked like it had been scorched by chemicals one too many times. It had an orange tinge that matched her cheetah print line jacket over a fuchsia and black tropical print shirt, which must have been the most colorful thing at her local Walmart, and black skin-tight leggings. 
Her skin looked like leather, and I instantly felt horrible for her. She looked more miserable than most patients. Her boyfriend and or pimp walked next to her, chewing tobacco and wearing a black trucker hat to match his badly receding oily black hair. His age was also ambiguous, but the fact that he walked with a can of Bud Light that he was drinking after putting his cigarette out of the door told me that he was typical Appalachian white trash. The act of drinking beer and chewing tobacco at the same time was horrific alone. He wore a wife beater that had been stained horrifically in the pits and jeans and looked like they had more mass from pure body odor than denim. Both had track marks running up their arms that looked like river maps. There was clearly a pack of beer or malt liquor in her purse. All of this was absolutely normal, everyday stuff. We served people like that all day giving them absurd amounts of painkillers to go home with. But this case was special, because the little girl who stood between them looked like an image from a movie. She couldn't have been more than six or seven, and was wearing a bright pink shirt with a cartoon character on it and bright blue jeans, which were framed by her long, tangled blonde hair. Aside from the fact that she had clearly been crying with puffy red eyes... She looked like she had all the health her parents clearly didn't. I'm gonna need my appointment, the shithead muttered angrily in a dialect of hick that sounded almost like Boomhauer. He sounded as if he was pissed off that I didn't greet him by name. I'm sorry, sir. I responded in my best English and planned on continuing to ask him to repronounce the sentence endlessly until I could ask Aaron and his goon friend to remove them. My name is Melissa Rogers, and this here's Cliff Rogers, the tired woman motioned to her husband. We came in last month on the same day. We have an appointment in an hour, and we'd like to check in, please. She was clearly accustomed to both Cliff's douchebaggery and the douchebaggery that I was prepared to respond with. I was mildly disappointed, but confident that old Cliffy would give me another opportunity. So I beamed a smile at her and got their charts. When I came back, I heard the girl sobbing and saw her little hand reaching up as if attempting to drag her mother down. What if he comes back? She asked the air above her. Why you shut the fuck up? Cliff responded flatly. I was going to be keeping this guy's file. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but instinctively I hated him enough for it to involve law enforcement. Also, that little girl needed out of there. In my head, my drug-besotted memory strained for anything related to child protective services. They got their papers and sat in the waiting room, the little girl sitting next to a giant fat man in tattered camouflage clothing, drinking a big gulp. The giant fat man barely came out of his opiate-induced trance when she began to cry quietly again, while staring at her feet. Neither of her parents looked over or made a noise until forty minutes later when they were called into the hallway that served as a second waiting room right before the patients went to see the doctor. The charts were set up so that the doctor they went to see was random. The one they saw last time wasn't there, but they usually saw the same doctor. Not as if continuity of care mattered. We just put the folders into slots next to the door and the doctor would take whichever folder came next call the patient and ask them to describe their symptoms while writing their names into prescriptions that were pre-stamped with what they were getting. 
regardless of who they actually were. I decided Cliff could skip ahead of a gentleman who had been slumped into one of the chairs, eyelids shut and drool flowing, for well over an hour. Aaron met some attractive young ladies and they ended up skipping him in line as well just before the Rogers family showed up. Cliff was called into the office of Dr. Besher's almost right away. I decided to be as close to direct as I possibly could without getting another phone call from George. I hate to bother you, ma'am, but I overheard your daughter saying something about someone bothering you. Would it happen to be a strange man? We've had a lot of problems with someone who just isn't normal. I said it with the same tone and inflection that a customer service agent would use, as if I was just performing a professional courtesy. She moved her daughter just slightly closer and gave both of us a concerned look before glancing at the door her husband had walked through. I made it look like I was looking for a specific file so that I didn't seem too interested in her response. She coughed a loose piece of phlegm into her tall boy before speaking. We drive down here, she gulped hard. And he want to stay at this motel with his friends and all, but they pissed at him that we couldn't afford it. They wasn't having any of it when he asked the clerk if we could sleep in the parking lot, so we went to the beach to sleep there because we'd never had a problem with that in Hilton Head or driving down through Georgia when we came. She pronounced Georgia, Georgia, and it almost sounded pretty. She stared down at her feet and then over to her little girl, who was watching her closely with concern. When we started to sleep, there was a man there. He knocked on the window and told us to leave. But he weren't no cop or nothing. He just looked real funny. He was just a kid and dressed like a hippie or something, so Cliff told him to go fuck himself and that he beat his ass if he came round again. She clearly sounded very proud of the fucking idiot. She stared at her feet before swallowing deeply again and continuing, this time looking at her little girl while talking. That kid said we needed to leave her there, or else. He said that we wouldn't have no trouble if we just left her there and went our way. He smiled and like it was no different than saying how do you do. He started creeping me out, so I told Cliff to just go when we would find some other place. But when we try to leave, that man start to holler. In his mouth, she turned from her little girl and leaned in closely to me. She glanced around quickly, as if someone could have entered the small crypt-like hallway without her knowing. His mouth got real big, and his jaw popped down. She whispered with intensity. What do you mean, pop down? Well, we used to have this snake in all, and when it ate, its jaw would pop down so we could fit a whole rat or whatever in there. His jaw popped down. When he started yelling, it did the same thing and just popped down. And even when we turn it away in a big truck, he start running up at us. And we look out the mirror, and we saw more people coming. So we thought maybe someone called the police, but, but they was running too. I heard this glass break and saw some kid behind us. I told Cliff to go, but he just kept looking at this man, and this man's face just started to open up, and I slapped him because I was scared, and then, he, and then he finally hit the gas and get the fuck out of there. We heard screaming, screaming so loud, and it didn't even sound like people. 
it sounded like cats in the heat, but, but, um, but, but angrier. It all rushed out in what sounded like a single breath, a massive run-on sentence that took me a moment to decipher. She looked exasperated now, and it was clear that she had been more stressed than usual from this particular run. We pull into a police station. Even Cliff was scared, and he ain't never scared. An officer talked to us real quick and said we could sleep the night there. Cliff told him we was going to relatives tomorrow and couldn't afford a hotel. We look, and there were scratch marks on the back of the car, and something sharp was dug all the way into the trunk. He'd a hook thing like a cat's claw, but, but without the cat. Whatever the fuck it was, it broke our brake light. And the cops said we have to get that fixed. She said this as if the car repair was the worst part of the story, and it took me a moment to restrain a chuckle. To most of these people, a small car hiccup could mean the difference between having a roof over their heads and having to desperately call relatives and friends for a bedroom. I don't want to come down here no more. The little girl said this matter-of-factly as her mother ran her fingers through her hair. Her mother looked at me, pleadingly. You ever hear that shit before? She asked with genuine fear. Yeah. Don't sleep near the beaches or near tourist traps. Only sleep in places people go, especially if they're going to clinics, even if it's a bad neighborhood. Go straight up I-95 and don't pull off any exits you don't hear about other people going down. They seemed like shitty parents, but they were probably better than whatever the fuck that thing was. The woman wiped a bit of moisture from her eye. We stopped at the motel the next day and Cliff apologized and stuff, but when we stayed the night, she kept trying to leave. She won't tell me why. She gripped her child fiercely and looked at me with pleading and concern and I could see the abscessed veins spreading from her fingers. Even there, she had injected heavily. I felt emotionally uncomfortable and had no way to reconcile my loathing and sympathy, both for her and for myself, for giving her the drugs that were about to fuck up that little girl's life even more. I ended the conversation politely and told her she should be all right then went to the bathroom and googled the child protective services process before calling them and letting them know Cliff had some issues to work out. Sometime later, I would get a phone call from a sheriff in Eustace, a small town relatively close to Orlando. The parents never made it home. A quick Google search revealed that Cliff was found near an abandoned tourist trap and that authorities were desperately searching for the remains of his wife, but were still holding out hope for the child whose name I only then learned was Daisy Rogers. I would sit and wonder for a moment why they knew the wife was dead, but were still searching before deciding to get very drunk on that particular night. The rest of that particular day, however, went smoother than usual. There was a junkie fight. An old lady pretended to be crippled and got up and started screaming at the doctor when she found out she wouldn't get more meds and someone covered the bathroom in feces and urine. There were plenty of offers from patients to clean it, all of them excited the disgusting possibility of earning up to a hundred dollars, which Aaron decided to award a yokel in a NASCAR cap who was deeply grateful. 
Towards the end of the day, I started to move amongst the patients while pretending to clean the impossibly disgusting sitting room once there was no one left to check in. I overheard usual junky chatter, mainly complaints about doctors and other clinics they were getting drugs from, or people asking how much their ringleader was letting each other keep to see if they were getting a fair deal. A fat guy in a wrestling t-shirt and a thoroughly disgusted young girl wearing purple shorts and a green tank top were negotiating how much to lauded she would get for a blowjob. Someone else was talking about a dead friend. But sure enough, it was just another overdose. Two young guys were talking about some place in Miami, though, and it got my attention in case I needed to remember it later. A kid with dusky blonde hair and a heavy metal band t-shirt with blue lightning everywhere sat against the wall next to the nearly destroyed drink vending machine that had chewing tobacco spat across what was left of its plastic facade near the hall that led to the bathroom. He was chatting with a shorter kid with black hair and glasses that had been taped together. He was wearing blue jeans and a camouflage t-shirt with a local hunting gear company in Ohio's logo and address. Dude, it was fucking incredible, and he got like six bags of it for free. The blonde kid practically yelped at his black-haired friend. And he said they had plenty more. We could get jobs and move to Miami. Blondie seemed thrilled, but his friend had a look of concern on his face. I ain't never heard of ephemera. If it was so good and it's free, why ain't it everywhere? He pronounced the name of the drug ephemera with some derision. I had heard some mention of ephemera before and was under the impression that it was a cocktail of hallucinogens. I had initially written it off because of the amount of people messing with those in Miami. And he ain't answering his phone no more on Facebook and we don't know what he up to or where he is. He could have got played. Easy. Been a patsy for somebody. We don't know nobody down there anyhow. They seemed concerned that they both were becoming aware that I was listening to them so I decided to enter the conversation. Excuse me, gentlemen, I couldn't help but overhear your story, and I had a friend who liked that ephemera stuff a lot as well. But he just fell off the face of the earth after inviting me to party with him. Do you know anything about where to get the stuff? With anyone else, they probably wouldn't have said shit, but I was a thoroughly respected connoisseur of narcotics, and indeed, all things junk. They looked at each other, and the kid with the glasses nodded to me as if he knew me and thought I was cool. It was kind of weird being a sort of micro-celebrity, but only with people I hated deeply. The blonde kid was excited for an opportunity to share his enthusiasm for the drug. Well, our friend from school, Kyle, he told us about this place in Miami. It's a club, like... He grinned and nodded at the word club, and I nodded back. He had probably only seen real nightclubs and movies, and even those weren't as pack-filled with beautiful people and loud music as some of the ones in Miami. And they have this ephemeris stuff, and it's just, like, free, and it's everywhere. I tried some and tripped balls for a whole day. I saw some weird shit, man. Ugh, weird shit. For real. He was using his hands to express every word. This was clearly a thrilling prospect for him. His friend looked more sour, however. I ain't never heard of this shit before, and I hear of everything. And Kyle? He stopped calling and deleted his Facebook. Even his mom and them's getting worried. And his mom know every dealer in Florida, and ain't never heard of no ephemera before. But Cassie, his cousin's baby mama, 
She said her friend went looking for it, and when Cassie tried to talk to her, she just kept smiling like and tried to get her to stay down here for it. The family networks these people had were as absurd as the people in them. They began to look legitimately concerned and stare down at his feet. She said her friend wouldn't stop smiling. Ear to ear, she said. She wasn't acting right and had a bunch of friends try and give her more of the stuff. Who the fuck gives out free drugs? Not like they usually need a lot of advertising. Especially if they in a nice club and shit. And why they only got it at one club all specific like? It just don't make no sense. I nodded to the kid with the broken glasses and slowly walked away. I think they got the impression that I thought he was right to be cautious because they looked at each other and the kid with the glasses gave Blondia, I told you so, look. The drive out of work was confusing. For a moment I thought I was going to my old home, but I forced myself to continue on I-95 past the boundaries of my normal daily existence. I was heading to the Fort Lauderdale Beach Park, a large sprawl of water-based family fun near Hialeah, where I remembered my favorite restaurant was. Like much of Florida, the urban sprawl is composed of small homes and occasional apartment complexes. Homes built in the 1920s aren't as rare as you think, and they litter the area near the waterfront in various stages of repair. They're just slightly taller than modern single-floor buildings, and in Florida, sometimes still have a shotgun layout, with a large center hall dividing groups of rooms. Their windows always have at least one example of a series of horizontal stripes of glass that can be opened and separated to allow air to flow through. They usually sport pastel or tropical colors and are terrible to live in. In wealthier areas, they renovate them and sell them for absurd sums. In poorer areas like Fort Lauderdale and especially Hialeah, they usually show their age, and in sunrise, most of them looked like they might fall down. It looked like they were fighting amidst the cheaper, blander constructions of the 1980s through 90s and somehow winning... With a newer facade that tended to be fixed to concrete block homes, coming apart here and there in more obvious ways, like peeling fake wood. Every now and then a mission-style home or building used as a church dotted the landscape. Strange bits of Spanish design that somehow never looked out of place next to the old homes. The sunset was an explosion of dark reds and burned oranges alight with flickers of turquoise, purple, and soft white clouds. An incredible scene that lurked over and behind every building, turning most of them into dark pastel silhouettes. I pulled into the park about ten minutes past the time I was supposed to be there and saw only a tall, well-dressed black guy facing one of the piers, away from the parking lot. I briefly remembered an urban legend about things that wait for people near waterways with their backs to the land, but shook it off and approached the man. He was wearing a light blue linen shirt with spotless white linen pants, with a black belt and matching shoes, both with blue accents. His hair was somewhere between dark blue and indigo on one side, and faded seamlessly into a perfectly bleached white color. It was the first time I had seen anyone take that much care of their appearance in a long time, and I was taken aback for a moment, even more so than when I spoke to the police or other people who might arrest me. This motherfucker looked like he just walked out of a music video. 
I was very impressed with his floridiness. Excuse me, Chris? He turned around and smiled wearily. He wore thick-framed black glasses that made him look gracefully pretentious. I'd say it's a pleasure to meet you, but I'd rather it be under any different circumstances. By the look on his face, probably not at all. I occasionally forgot that I was a disgusting-looking junkie that rarely shaved and probably smelled like shit. But this guy's appearance really made me a lot more aware. Yeah, I think we have some experiences in common. I looked around the park again to make sure no one else was there. I couldn't see anyone, and he walked closer to me. Did you tell whoever you work for where you were going? He had a look of deep concern. The question startled me. N no. I... But they do know what's going on. Don't they? He asked, cutting me off. I had no idea what to say. They sent me to make a drop near the beach. There was something there. One of them killed one when it came to his house, so they can't not know, but... I don't know what they do know, or how much of this shit is connected. As I was speaking, I was slowly becoming more aware of the fact that I didn't know this guy at all, but that we were jumping into a pretty fucking weird conversation. His face didn't look surprised at all, though, so I guessed that we were both talking about the same thing. The other thing I started to realize was that I had no idea how many of the urban legends and weird stories were based on truth, and out of those, which ones were connected with the same thing. I looked online, I think they're called Stagini, by the Indians and stuff. I realized that I now sounded as desperate and ignorant as the junkies I had previously listened to. I wondered how many of them edited out the crazier parts of their stories. I think you might be right. At the very least, something got three of my friends, and most of what it did fit the description of a monster from pre-Seminole Florida. The Ishkatini, or... Stagini. He was about to go on, but I had to cut him off. How did you know I worked for someone? I asked pointedly. Grace, Alyssa, they both ran drugs for money. Cops don't arrest a lot of cute girls. I think whoever they were working for got them killed. And I think they did it on purpose. I felt the ground go loose beneath me and my legs buckle just a little. A cold shock went up my spine, even though I should not have been surprised. We walked to the beach where I described in detail what I had seen, and then decided that we should get dinner, or rather I should, he had apparently eaten, which somehow stopped him from eating more, and continue the conversation. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So, finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together, but you're not doing it because you feel like it. 
No, you're doing it because you love them, because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the Internet, so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. Chapter 7 After the ground felt more settled, me and my absurdly costumed acquaintance both seemed to want to get out of there. The Fort Lauderdale Beach Park was pretty nice during the day, but the small wooden fortress used by children as the fuel for imaginative battles looked larger and more ominous with the dark water behind it. The entire park was in the nicer area of town, right after a field of avenue-like waterways that bordered several groups of man-made islands. During sunrise, the area is infamously beautiful and the people living there have gotten used to the strange early morning traffic through their tiny demence. Twenty minutes west, my favorite restaurant from Mofongo was no longer keeping me distracted from what Chris had just told me, and I didn't want to stick around anyways. But for the moment, I didn't feel entirely alright with what I had just pieced together. After gushing out the vague details of the dead drop in George's misfire that killed whatever Cynthia turned into, I felt one part exhausted and two parts weary that this guy was either some kind of trap or someone who would think I was crazy. For simplicity, I decided to leave out any crap that I saw in the day-to-day -day pill mill activities because I had no idea how this guy was going to react. As I was going over my story, I noticed how insane and junk-fueled it must have seemed but the strange man just kept nodding and listening as I went on. Towards the end of the story, I was feeling antsy to leave. I just didn't feel safe so close to the water. With a fancy blue linen shirt and white linen pants and hair that slowly faded from pure white to dark blue, he was going to stand out pretty badly anywhere he went, including my favorite Mafongo restaurant, but I didn't care. Are there any other employees that seem to know what's going on? He asked almost pleadingly. I briefly thought of Aaron and Jessica, but Jessica seemed to be willingly unaware of whatever was going on outside of her office, and Aaron seemed to be in good with George. Probably, but most people in the mills owned by George are close friends of his. He nodded with a defeated look on his face. Yeah, people with tight lips and close friends are a running theme. Loose lips sink ships. I muttered the phrase that was repeated with urgency in one form or another by anyone who has driven over state lines with something illegal. The more people involved, the higher the risk that someone would spill the beans. Except a lot of people seemed to have had run-ins with various weird shit, and no one was making a sound. My mind began to reel at the thought of how many people may have experienced some of this shit, but were unable to say anything because they were runners on the blue highway moving meds from Florida to Ohio, the Virginias, the Carolinas, Tennessee, and especially Kentucky. I tried to stop thinking about that by focusing on the much more immediate threat at hand. The idea that I was being used as some sort of patsy had occurred to me, but for some reason I simply couldn't force myself to think about the fact that my employer seemed to have sent me on a trip specifically to have me killed. It was absolutely normal for junkies to get a hot dose or a small amount of lethal fentanyl mixed in with whatever they typically enjoy. 
The overwhelming narcotic could kill even a veteran junk fiend if said junk fiend knew too much, even if there wasn't reason to expect a threat. No one likes loose ends. While I didn't know for sure the fact that Chris's friends had probably been killed by their employer, or that their deaths were related to the junkie business, unsettled me to the core. I mentioned George's cool reaction to the insanity at his own home and the death of one of his goons. As I sat on the bench looking out at the fortress from the water behind it, Chris seemed to get the situation. So you think the dead drop may have been planned? He sat next to me very slowly, sounded genuinely concerned. I don't know, I answered truthfully. What happened to your friends that made you think their bosses were involved? Grace worked as a shot girl in some hellhole near Las Olas. She loved partying too much. At the mention of Fort Lauderdale's favorite drinking region, he seemed to relax into the bench before expounding. I was glad, because in addition to his outfit being a little outside of normal, I had no idea who this guy was. She got hooked on blow, and then everything else. She started running packages from Miami up to Orlando and back again, mainly money for one end and and Molly to the other end to make money back from her habit. But that's not where it starts. Before Grace, Claire, Alyssa, we just called her Alyssa most of the time, and her friend Janet both went missing. We hung out a lot in high school, and Claire wanted to do some school projects showing how to dig up pottery correctly. We were supposed to meet at the Starbucks near our high school, but she never showed. He sat forward and seemed to focus on the now invisible horizon lurking over the ink-black ocean. He was clearly watching me out of the corner of his eye, but now that he knew I had been attacked by bird people, he showed some signs of being more comfortable. We got this call about an hour after we were supposed to meet with her. She said she was still in the Sea Branch Preserve State Park and she needed help. She was crying. We could barely understand her but she said something about her arm she said her phone wasn't working until then and that something came out of the sky and attacked her we heard some kind of weird sound and she cut out he breathed in and out deeply and finally looked directly at me scrutinizing my reaction he called the cops right away and they said they'd send people but the next day they showed up at our doorstep and practically called us liars. They said there was no way to prove that Alyssa actually said that stuff. They said they didn't find anything. But when we went to the parking lot she always used two days later, we found broken glass and broken pieces of door. Up a tree we saw what looked like blood. They told Grace that they checked and that it wasn't human blood, but we didn't believe that for a second. Grace was pissed. She made a Facebook group and tried to tell everyone the cops were ignoring us. I didn't want to tell her that our story sounded crazy with the police saying that it wasn't blood or a door part from Alyssa's car. But Grace didn't even believe they had checked to begin with. He sighed and clenched his fists briefly. Except for one cop, they all ignored us. Grace said one guy believed her. They kept talking to her and eventually they started... They started hanging out. She stopped returning my calls. All that... New guy stuff. 
Except for the fact that she was like 17 and he looked like he was in his 40s. I didn't trust him to begin with because the other cops didn't seem surprised that our friend had called us at all. They didn't look like they didn't believe us, they just didn't want to hear it. It went on for a couple months or so. I eventually moved down here with family and assumed that it was just a natural falling off the face of the earth thing. Things didn't go well and she broke it off when he asked her to run away with him, whatever the fuck that means. She cleaned up, stopped returning his calls, but he kept at it. After a couple months, she showed up at my place asking if she could crash and saying that she was going to the cops the next day. He took his glasses off of his face and briefly rubbed them with a small piece of cloth he produced from the front of his shirt. I noticed they were slightly misted inside. <laughs> my mom hated it, but she ended up staying for a while. The cops said that they never had an officer by that description and that they had no idea what we were talking about. She didn't have any pictures of him and said that they always met in public places or the hotel he stayed at on the island. She kept saying that he was different at first and that it felt perfectly fine. But it changed and he wanted her to go away with him. I never got a clear answer as to what she meant. I... I think she was afraid to tell me all of the details. He sounded miserable. I could imagine him thinking he could have done more to help his friend. But I doubt that was actually true. She started using all the damn time anything she could. I had to lie to my mom to explain why all the NyQuil was gone when she went through that too. She said that... She thought she saw him moving through the cars at a parking lot near her work and just got even worse. My mom tried to talk to me about it every day, but I couldn't tell her something supernatural had happened. The guy never came to my place, and eventually Grace and I went out to Sunrise Flea Market to help clear her head. Get out for once. <laughs> Stop scaring the hell out of my mom. The Sunrise Flea Market was a spectacular spectacle of poverty. A massive, sprawling parking lot filled with various buildings, some just tents and some genuine concrete, called home by vendors of everything from stolen goods to crappy clothes. It was a powerful reminder that South Florida was, and always had been, closer to being part of the Caribbean than part of the American South. A massive open-air market for fruits, vegetables, fish, and occasionally even meats existed, with hawkers offering chilled coconuts with straws and other tropical favorites to drink. Almost anything filthy. And a Floridian could be found there. He was at the entrance. I assumed he meant the massive gate that separated the lot where people parked from the lot where people sold junk and nodded for him to go ahead. He looked like he needed some confirmation that it was all right to continue. Grace saw him first. She walked ahead of me a ways while I parked the car. She thought it would be safe in public. The place was packed. It was the middle of the fucking day. And there were four security guards in sight, but he didn't care. He looked pissed. He started walking up to Grace and he took out this big hammer. It looked like fucking farming equipment. But I wasn't about to take this shit. Before he got to us, I called over one of the security guards who know my cousin to have the asshole removed. I noticed that the man's right fist was now clenched and shaking. 
I stood there pointing at the band while he just walked up to Grace with a hammer. Desmond, the guard, he just looked at her helplessly with a confused look. That man walked right up to Grace with that fucking thing and almost managed to grab her hand before she realized something was wrong and started to run. No one gave a shit that the guy pulled a weapon in public. And there was a crowd. Well over a hundred people right there. She screamed for help. People were looking around. They didn't pay any attention to the hammer. He took a deep breath out and looked at me. I nodded again to indicate that I believed him, and I did. What did he look like? He was wearing suspenders and a white shirt. Creepy fucker. Pretty good looking, but still... I have no idea what Grace was thinking. I saw this coming from a thousand miles away, but it hit me like a ten-ton hammer. She was running to me, but he was right behind her with that hammer. The car was 15 feet away, and I didn't know whether I should run to it and get it moving or try to help fight him off. I just knew I'd get killed if he got to me. I ran to the car, and Grace screamed so loud I can still feel my ears ringing. I managed to get in and get it running and keep the passenger door open while still dodging families and shit crossing the way. She caught up with me and got in the car, but that creep had hit her in the shoulder, and it was already jet black and bleeding badly. She was almost in when he caught up with her. She raised her hand to block him and tried to fall in, but he hit her that it looked like part of her hand was just going to fall off. I floored it and we got out of there, but the security guards flagged my car. Blood was spraying everywhere in broad daylight and people were just standing around, confused. He shook his head sadly. We only realized later that we were the only ones who could see him. Whatever that thing was, it got Grace. It wanted her. But I could see it too. I only saw him one other time, but I know it got her. When we got out of there, the cops were practically on us, but they just took me to some station while she was in the hospital. Let me go with an apology when she told them it was someone else. What did you mean when you said I should avoid her? At this question, I heard what sounded like a cough, but when I looked over, I saw him dabbing his eyes with the same piece of cloth he used for his glasses. About two weeks later, she got a call. She had to do a drop for her boss which she was using a lot to cope with all this shit and the bill ran up fast. She had been staying at my place for a while at that point and stayed indoors more and more often. She was afraid to leave because she was afraid he would be there. But her boss said her line of credit was up and either someone would come to my place to collect or she would make the trip. I told her I would get the money, about four grand, but she was worried about not getting more coke. I got her to agree not to do it, but I went out to the grocery store for my mom, and she was gone when I came back. A couple hours later, I got a phone call. She was crying, and I could barely understand what she was saying, but she was asking for help and saying she was sorry. I know I heard something about a bird, but she was babbling wildly. She screamed, and the phone cut out. She mentioned earlier that the drop was at Bryant Park. So I called PBSO and told them I was nearby and heard gunshots from over there. 
He took a deep breath in. Now that he was in the weird, he was firing the words out so quickly he barely had a chance to breathe. His cheeks were damp at that point from the buildup of occasional tears. I started driving as fast as I could. I just took off. Didn't even put away the groceries. By the time I was on I-95 for about ten minutes, she called again. She sounded fine this time. But she asked me how I was doing as if the other phone call had never happened. Then she asked me why I wasn't home. This was no more than twenty minutes after I got the first phone call. Even if she was fine, she couldn't have made it there. It wasn't her. He pounded his fist into his leg and was shaking with some volatile mix of fear and anger. I had to go home. He said this with an incredible resolution. I remember being absolutely stunned. What? I had no idea what else to say. He looked at me with a firm look, despite openly weeping at this point. Whatever called me was at my house and it wasn't Grace. I had to get home. I hung up and got on an off-ramp. I went as fast as I thought I could without getting pulled over. When I got there, my mom and some of her friends were just leaving the house. I didn't see anyone else. I called Grace's phone back. I had to know for sure. But I just heard someone breathing in really heavily, right before they screamed into the receiver. I couldn't tell if there was something wrong with the line, but it sounded like nails on the chalkboard in hell. He resumed staring aimlessly at the waterway and cleaned his face before continuing. The next few weeks, the cops came in and out of my house every time Grace's family felt like it was a good idea to ask them how the search for their daughter was going. Her boss was questioned. I got brought in three times, but they decided to remove me from the suspect list because the drug-dealing piece of shit was a way more obvious suspect. He even threatened me once, but nothing came of it. Her family still thinks I had something to do with it, at the very least that I knew something that I wasn't saying. I wish I could say they were wrong. He shook his head. I knew the feeling. At the moment, however, I was pretty selfishly worried, seeing as Grace and I had way too much in common. What was your boss's name? I mean, just out of curiosity, you know? John Holpert. Creepy dude. He sold a lot of coke. I involuntarily breathed a sigh of relief. I had heard of the guy, but it wasn't a direct associate of George. He clearly noticed, but didn't say anything. There were others who went missing, too. Grace, Alyssa, Janet. But also this kid named Pablo, who also worked for Holpert. I can't tell if it's all connected, but it's a lot of people. I didn't want to tell him how much worse it was at the pill mill, but I nodded. My stomach gurgled angrily. It had been promised Mofongo. And so far we hadn't even gotten into our cars yet. And it all has something to do with Stegany or whatever. God, I wish there was just a burial ground we peed on or something. So, would you like to finish this conversation somewhere less creepy? They chuckled and nodded. I could almost smell the fried plantains and broth. Yes. Yeah, I really do. They both stood up, a little staggered from having sat in an uncomfortable bench for long enough for us to air out our experiences. We drove away from the massive, beautiful homes and avenues of water, 
with rich old white people walking their dogs or jogging, and in no time we were both adrift in the sprawl of old mission homes and crappy apartments. We got to the Mafango restaurant, El Rinconcito de Santa Barbara, a nice-sized restaurant in a cheap-looking strip mall. Their Mafango was a legendary thing, even among people who viewed Hispanic food as boring and commonplace. We ended up trading the information that we shared in the Stagini, and he expressed how thrilled he was that one was killed by what was, in retrospect, a pretty bad mistake on the part of Cynthia. He had a textbook he had brought which explained the native myths weren't really clear if the Stagini was a monster, or if it was a person who somehow learned to do horrible magic. Native American magic was something neither of us knew about, but he worked in a library under work-study and had already rented and read every book he possibly could imagine pertaining to them. The problem was the Ayis and the Jaga, where the myth seemed to be closest to what we were seeing, specifically with being able to attack someone while unseen by people around them, were ancient. They predated the seminal and almost nothing was recorded of their beliefs, which were apparently as robust as any religion. My voice was becoming a little raw from talking more than I'm used to, so I let him go on about what he had read, including information about vampires and similar monsters elsewhere, until the food came. When the Mafango came, it seemed his appetite returned, because we focused mainly on eating after that. I felt massively better, and not just because I was eating Mafango. I got the impression this guy wasn't the kind of scum I was used to talking to. The belief that this Chris guy was genuinely all right, at least on some level, was the most reassuring thing in my world at that moment. Other than drugs. And Mafongo. When we parted ways and I headed home, he let me borrow several of the books he brought with him and we added each other on Facebook. I drove back up to Okeechobee Boulevard in West Palm Beach, almost an hour away, and slept well in my shitty ancient hotel room. Chapter 8 I felt even better when I woke up in the morning. The tiny, dingy hotel room seemed like a small palace with its ancient tile floors and high ceiling. I somehow felt better, clearer, to know that George was, in fact, my enemy. I wondered if I could survive as an informant, considering the fact that I was very worried that my boss might want me tied up to avoid loose ends, it might not be a horrible idea at all. Besides, the good times were killing me. I felt pretty anxious, and for once it had little to do with supernatural threats. I was about to spend the day working with someone who wanted me dead in the middle of a room filled with people willing to do it for nothing. The patients were wretches who were easy to laugh at, but even the most pathetic person alive can pull the trigger. They weren't the only ones with a certain nihilistic strength, though. I wondered why Chris hadn't been exposed to anything weird even after the close encounter with something trying to kill his friend. I was guessing at the time that it was almost certainly the lack of narcotics in his system, something I had not yet confirmed but felt confident enough, especially by his reaction to Grace's use. I was presuming some things I should have asked him, but I still felt more confident and less insane than I had in months, 
despite knowing my boss would probably like me to die. The hotel I was staying at was just off Avernia Street, a massive building for its time. It was built in 1921, with doors that looked almost medieval. Henry Flagler was so smitten with the Villa Zoyeda in St. Augustine that a powerful Moorish influence began to pervade much of his favorite architecture, and then slowly, maturely, architecture that he had nothing to do with. South Florida is filled with mission-style architecture largely because of this lasting influence. Even Flagler's home is strangely Hispanic-looking, considering the Anglo-American origins of its builders. It was abundant in the 1920s hotel, with massive dark brown tiles, stucco, and stone everywhere. Nearly floor-to-ceiling windows, creaking floors, and very little electrical lighting or plumbing. My bathroom was small and had a clawed-foot bathtub and a wash basin that looked like it may have been original. It reminded me of the kind of apartments they have in New York City, especially with a higher view of the semi-urban sprawl. I put myself together and thought what a nice place to do drugs it was, but decided to keep it slim. I decided to take a good bit less Xanax that morning, coming down to just two milligrams. That's still enough to knock a normal human being unconscious with more ease than Benadryl could muster. But I knew that every minute of the day was going to go by with incredible anxiety that would make every second seem like an hour. The lobby of the hotel was massive, with huge pillars on the corners of the room. Almost everything was a shade of brown, tan, or beige, giving me the impression that the room was in sepia. The cracking stucco and massive stone floor made it look far more ancient than it was. It was barely lit, with small light bulbs here and there and nearly makeshift fluorescence fixed to the ceiling, which was up to 30 feet up in some places. The darkness was thorough, despite the small windows making it appear as if it were nearly nighttime. If there was a private eye smoking in a button leather chair, it would look like a tropical noir movie. This was in contrast to the explosion of turquoise and violent pink clouds that loomed outside. Chris and I were planning on meeting at the end of the week, and I had to make a fast decision about whether I would continue working there and try and uncover the mystery, or if I should prepare for some truly brutal withdrawals and a proffer from the FBI. This was where the FBI offers one protection from prosecution in exchange for information on one's employers or dealer or whatever. I decided to take a walk from the hotel to the seawall, about a 20-minute walk each way despite the fact that the bright turquoise and pink sky indicated it was still early morning. Somehow, I felt bold. Possibly by the thought of fucking over George. Possibly because I felt more secure knowing that Chris was a potential ally. The area just north of the tightly packed new buildings featuring luxury lofts and obnoxious bars and boutiques known as City Place was filled with older buildings. They often had wood floors and sported either utilitarian box shapes or were grand structures with nuanced detail in every alcove and column. The people were similar enough, either pointlessly wealthy or outrageously poor, and at night they either panhandled or moved between clubs and stores. I've heard it's gotten a little nicer, but there are still a lot of homeless. The entire expanded area of downtown West Palm Beach had far more high-rise buildings, and it ran along a stretch of seawall that was always a great place for a walk. I made my way away from the hotel and towards Makeup's, 
a small bagel restaurant near the well-bubbled Christian University that lurked off of Okeechobee Boulevard. There were plenty of people out that morning, business people going to work at the many law firms near the massive semi-arch-shaped courthouse that loomed over the district, or just walking their dogs, or begging for change. A kid bumped into me after just about two blocks while riding his skateboard. Aside from that, no one interacted with me at all. He didn't turn around or say anything, and from the way people looked at me, I was guessing, perhaps, I could have shaved or done something better with my hair this morning. I reached Makeup's and thoroughly enjoyed an egg and salami sandwich to go, on the seawall I was closest to. This was a practice enjoyed in some way or another by almost everyone living in the area. The waterfront view was amazing, and the architecture of some of the old churches and other elderly buildings interrupting the skyline once every other block or so made it feel like the modern era had somehow only invaded West Palm Beach. Art Deco, Spanish influences and high-rise condominiums and offices were wrapped in a light turquoise and pink from the reflections of the sky they offered and framed with the dark green of ubiquitous palm trees. Some people went to the seawall, some people had views from their desks, and some just enjoyed the brief drive from Okeechobee that happened to touch the water. But it was hard not to take a deep, relaxing breath in whenever one saw the water. I felt much better, almost like a normal human being. I was walking up a massive artificial hill near an amphitheater about the size of a football field when I began to even smile and say good morning to passers-by. I was greeting a particularly delighted Lhasa Apsu, a beautiful woman in yoga pants, was walking when I felt a sharp smack on my back. The sound of wheels on the sidewalk pointed me to the kid who had hit me earlier while riding his skateboard, who was catching up with a few friends who had skated ahead. He was wearing a backwards baseball cap with the UM logo on it, and carrying what looked like a bright blue and yellow hat in his hand. He didn't bother apologizing again as he sped up to join his friends who had found a concrete staircase perfect for mischief. The woman and her dog continued on, obviously weirded out. I turned up Clematis Street, where restaurants, clubs, and boutiques entirely different than the ones that existed the month previously had confidently sprung up, and the workers were preparing the outside eating areas for a brunch crowd that wasn't deterred by weekdays. I wondered what it would feel like to go to the gym in the mornings or something. It was feeling like an incredible day when I suddenly realized I was going to be low on opiates soon, and therefore at risk of God knows what. I reached into my pocket to grope for my stash when I suddenly felt a shocking pain in my back and a strange sensation of falling on my face. I heard a small rise in the cement outside a shop hard, my vision filled with stars. I could tell from the sharp pain and tastes of pennies flooding my mouth that I had bitten down on my tongue. The kid whirled past me, his wheels making a low, almost innocuous growl on the sidewalk. This time, he whipped his board around to face me. There was nothing weird about him at all. A small teenager, with a crisp-looking plaid shirt and hipster jeans. He had a mop of brown hair under his U.M. cap and light blue eyes. He picked up his board and held it under one arm, while holding what was apparently not a hat, but a bright blue and yellow striped mask in the other hand. The shape of its face was clearly that of an ibis or wood stork, and what I thought was a bill previously tapered off into a thin but brightly colored beak. It looked like slick stone, 
almost as if it had the scintillating appearance of some kind of opal. The small group of skateboarders waited on the man-made hill that separated Clematis from the street that ran through City Place. He had a smug grin on his face. I got up as fast as I could, shambling back and into some railing, surprising a waiter. I heard a few of the kids snicker. I walked away from them at an incredible pace, turning 90 degrees right away and pretending I had somehow not seen them at all. I managed to get back to the safety of other junkies in the hotel in record time, keeping my head down and not looking behind me whenever I heard wheels on the sidewalk. I didn't see them after I rounded the next block and finally made it to the street with my hotel in view. The pixie-like young girl with dyed gray-blue hair wearing a bright orange tank top and dark blue and turquoise paisley swimming trunks sat on a bench opposite the hotel, next to a homeless man who smiled at her happily. She had a large, dark red and seafoam green mask on her lap, and even from that distance I recognized the fat diamond shape of a gator's head. I stayed indoors another couple of hours and called in late. I hurried to my car and tried not to check if anyone was following me. As I began to wait for another week to end, I hoped to avoid my co-workers and patients while I read books on Native American myths Chris gave me obsessively. Debbie was standing behind the desk talking to Aaron when I came in. She turned and smiled to me, but Aaron had a much less happy face as he sank behind his check-in counter. Good morning. Great to see you again. I muttered some kind of greeting, but her saccharine attitude and Aaron's obvious displeasure was making the FBI seem like a great idea already. Good morning. I smiled weakly and nodded to Aaron quickly to avoid prolonged eye contact. Could I ask you a question really quick? She turned and walked back to her office, not bothering to wait for a response. Aaron nodded back to me but seemed more distracted by a small pull in his bright fuchsia skin-tight shirt. Or maybe he was looking for an excuse to show his abs to the young girls at the front of the incoming group of patients. I waddled to Debbie's office, hoping this was going to be something not creepy. Dave wanted to talk to you. When's a good day for you? Mondays are inherently fucking terrible. Um, how about later this week? Maybe Friday? If I could bring him to my next meeting with Chris, maybe we could share some insight onto whether or not they were trying to kill me again. Sounds great. Also, I hate to ask, but could you help work the desk today? I'm feeling a little under the weather. This made me quietly furious as I had planned to hide from the patients and smoke pot whenever possible that day. The lack of Xanax was making me feel deeply stressed. After nodding dutifully, I marched back to the front. Within minutes, patients had already filled the disgusting lobby. I was about to get to work filing patients into the computer system when I noticed a young lady who looked like she had been crying much more than usual. Her ringleader was an alpha douche, short, with a thick Tom Selleck-style mustache, tall black cowboy boots, stained black trucker hat, tight black denim pants, and a camouflage tank top to show off Confederate flags and eagles on wiry-looking arms. He was chewing tobacco and motioned for his friends to stand back before he leaned the upper half of his body over the counter and motioned for me to talk to him. Bro, I got fifty bucks if you can help get me out of here a little quicker. While it was common to offer money or anything else to get ahead, it was rare for someone to assume that fifty bucks would make me happy to see him. He was about five six, 
Rupert had the confidence of a man who was both taller and less inbred. I nodded, not wanting to say anything because I hated the man already and didn't want it to become obvious. I moved his file ahead of the doctor's waiting area and tried to put the two feminine names in the back so that I could talk to the girl who seemed distraught. She had frumpy brown hair tumbling over a powder blue tank top and blue jeans and it looked like she had been crying the entire ride down. I couldn't see her eyes because she was staring at the ground the whole time, but she wouldn't leave this little creep's side. Byron James! I called the little twerp into the second waiting room where he slipped me a small greasy wad of money that I would bet anything didn't add up to fifty. He marched happily into his appointment and left the crying girl in the waiting room, as well as a six-and-a-half-foot muscular skinhead that was apparently named Ashley. The look on my face when he confirmed this must have been priceless because both everyone in the main lobby cracked up when I called him in. I made sure Ashley had his appointment first, leaving the weeping girl sobbing quietly in the corner. I took care of something in the office to give her a couple minutes before approaching her to make sure, at least, someone asked her if she was in immediate danger. I made it look like I was inspecting files when I suddenly noticed that there were no more files left for her group. That could mean that she was just a tag-along, but I wasn't feeling great about my odds. Thoroughly creeped out, I backed away. As I moved away from the files and the girl, I noticed that she was no longer crying, and I felt confident that if I turned around, I would see her staring at me. I turned to go back to the office, but heard her first move, then get out of the chair at a cautious pace. When I reached the office door, I could see her standing out of my peripheral vision, facing me away from the doctor's doors in the hallway. I was starting to get a little creeped out, so I decided not to ask her any more questions and shut the door behind me. I sat at my desk until I noticed them leaving ten minutes later. Thanks for the help, bro. Byron James was clearly thrilled as he held up his prescriptions and threw me a peace sign before handing the prescriptions to Aaron to be filled. His crew shuffled out behind him, one at a time. I couldn't help but watch them. After Ashley lumbered out of the door, I still expected the girl to file behind them. The spring attached the door quietly, but promptly moved it shut after Ashley passed. Aaron got up and walked through the second waiting room to get the counter where the doctors placed bottles of medication and their completed paperwork. The second waiting room was empty too. Byron got his medication quickly and began chatting up a pretty blonde while he waited for his lackeys to get their medications and sort out their agreed trades with other junkies in the parking lot and bathroom line. I went back to work in earnest, scanning files and trying not to notice how many had their records shipped to this and that place because the Narcan didn't come soon enough. Psst, hey bro. I could hear the sleaze dripping from his voice. Without turning around, I knew Byron was leaning over the counter again, taking advantage of Aaron's brief absence to be even more of a douche than necessary. The problem with taking money from junkies was that they assumed that either you were cool, or that you needed money enough to get favors from. Either invited further conversation. I got some good friends and shit, and I was thinking, maybe you could, like, help them get through faster. I love coming here and all, but these lines, you know? 
He paused his bullshit to gauge my reaction and to take a long sip from his tall boy of chilada, a surprisingly refreshing mix of clamato, beer, spices, and lime juice. As I turned from my desk, I saw the girl again. She was sitting in the lobby now, directly next to the pretty blonde Byron had attempted to fraternize with. Sheila May Cassidy was her name, according to her file. She was staring at Sheila with a wide-eyed expression of shock and rage. Her cheeks were still wet, and her pale, oval-shaped face was starkly beautiful. Framed by tangles of brown hair that looked incredibly frizzy and as if they hadn't seen a brush in years, her weeping made her blue-green eyes look particularly vivid. From the angle she was sitting... I noticed that she had a dark, red-wet stain on her crotch. Guy, come, I... uh, Sure, whatever. I felt like I had been punched in the stomach. I turned away from Byron, who looked triumphant despite my failing to meet his high five. I had almost talked to her. No one else seemed to notice her except for a fat old biker who had put down his Mountain Dew and was now moving cautiously toward the door. I sank down into a brown folding chair and lit up a joint, despite being barely obscured. Later on that day, I would get a call, asking for Sheila's file and any information about her. It was PBSO this time, not a distant sheriff. Some officers came by to ask us about her too, but were tight-lipped about why. According to the news, they found the lower half of her body outside of a La Quinta. I found a couple of tiny tufts of blonde hair in the waiting rooms and outside the next day. I didn't want to take any more Xanax, so I decided to drink some NyQuil just to be on the safe side. I got away from my desk and went to the back door that met the alley behind our chunkitarium and told Aaron that I needed a quick break for a joint, prompting him to nod and put out his cigarette. After smoking a couple of joints and drinking a little more NyQuil, I staggered out of my folding metal chair. I wanted to simply feel nothing. I went into Debbie's office to see if maybe she had some shrooms or something, but her office was empty. The door to the second waiting room was closed, and I noticed her car keys were missing, so I assumed she had run out. Her office had a single small fluorescent light that she ignored in favor of a tidy-looking desk lamp. It was the only thing tidy about the office, with papers everywhere and the walls covered in stupid posters and framed pictures of her and her friends. After rummaging around in her desk for a few minutes, I found a few shrooms, a small bag of pills, some coke, and a lot of half-finished paperwork. Since I was already shamelessly rifling through her shit on the pretense of being in the back for an innocent narco break, I decided to look through it. Behind some unfinished attempts at lying to the DEA about diversion practices, there were some pictures that she had developed. They were from work and her house, and seemed to be from the same group as the ones on the wall. I even saw one of me, looking wasted at her house. That was when I noticed the one of her drinking a beer in the gold ring pub with a friend. Her friend was a young man wearing a blue t-shirt, smiling awkwardly into the camera, as Debbie flaunted her massive Silicon Valley in a black tank top. The young man was the young man who I saw dressed nicely. 
with a bolo tie, asking for help. In some of the pictures, he was helping out with paperwork at American Injury Clinic, the behemoth narco factory that was George's flagship. I wondered if I had been his replacement. For the first time in years, withdrawal seemed like a better option than continuing the many seemingly intertwined risks. When I got to my desk, I began to Google news investigations to see if I could find the names of the prosecutors or agents specifically involved. I went back to work a lazy half hour later, longer than usual but not enough to raise eyebrows. Debbie came back an hour later with slightly darker skin that she left and a frappuccino. I felt a twinge of disgust when she smiled at me and the blunt trauma betrayal made it difficult to focus on anything else. I began to scan files again, now keeping an eye out for names, anything that seemed familiar I tried to file away. The lack of Xanax was helping quite a bit. I wondered what a proffer from the FBI would actually look like. Wilkes, can I talk to you for a second? Jessica's voice came from her medication room, directed at no particular direction. I happily shambled back to the only consistently clean room in the clinic. Grace and I were talking, and she mentioned that she never heard from you? She trailed off, expecting an answer, but I didn't have one. After calling the first number, Chris's, I was happily under the impression that Grace was something to avoid. Um... When did you talk to her? The pit was already forming in my stomach before I began to ask the question. I quickly hoped that she had called her and that there was a strange story behind it to confirm that something had happened to Grace. We went out shopping the other day. She works at Neiman Marcus in the island that gets a killer discount. I guess she hasn't heard from Chris in a while. Did you manage to get a hold of him? I shook my head, not knowing what to say. I felt like the room was suddenly 30 degrees colder. No, no, um... I'll call Grace, though. Some stuff happened, I just, uh... I need some time to chew on things. Jessica looked dead serious and nodded at the ground, seeming genuinely sympathetic. Hmm. You look like you've lost weight and cleaned up a bit lately. Thanks. I had actually gained weight... I'm a stress eater and wasn't taking the lack of Xanax and opiates well, although my bowel movements were a lot better, but I was wearing clean clothes and didn't smell, so I took it as a genuine compliment. I awkwardly shuffled away from the beautiful girl. I wondered why whatever Chris was would give me books and talk to me instead of eating or killing me. I wondered what relation he had to the other things I had seen. I wondered if maybe Jessica had gone shopping with the still-moving corpse of something that used to be Grace. I couldn't think clearly enough to even imagine a scenario that might tie it all together. The next day, I wasn't taking the decrease in Xanax and creepy kids outside my hotel very well. I hadn't seen them again, but I also hadn't ventured outside during the night or morning and kept the blinds shut. Sure enough, by the next time the morning started in earnest, I felt as if I had had four cups of coffee and was ready to scream every time anyone made even the slightest traffic error. When I got to the clinic, the parking lot was filled with beaten-down vehicles that were packed like clown cars filled with junk aficionados, many with towels or blankets over the windows to keep the light out while the occupants slept. 
Some of them stood in circles, forming small narcotic stock markets as middle dealers debated how many of which pills would be best to trade off with others. Many people would get killed over deals made in that parking lot. Entire fortunes came and went every day, usually in cars worth less than $3,000. The strip mall with the pill mill faced another strip mall on the other side of the parking lot, which looked like a flea market for narcotics. They tried not to pay attention to their stares as they whispered angry speculations as to when they could expect to finally get in and get their medications. Before I made it to the door, I suddenly recognized an increase in volume from the back of the lot, and finally the telltale yelps of Hicks shouting. I took my cell phone out of my pocket and ran towards it, texting Debbie to send Aaron out as I went. When I got to the noise, I saw a ring of filthy human backs with heads pointed towards whatever was in the center of that ring. If they were fighting, especially over drugs, a lot of people could easily be going to jail if the cops had to come break it up. The wall of backs was too densely packed to see around. Come the fuck on, people! I yelled, hoping that someone would want medication badly enough to have some interest in helping get the two combatants apart. They ignored me, other than a few frightened faces turning to glance at me before focusing again on whatever was in the center of the circle. They did this while backing away. I could hear a gurgling and cracking noise over their frightened yelps and calls to relatives nearby. I pushed my way between an obese biker with a Confederate and American flag on his black leather vest and a skinny man with thin black hair who looked like he had more junk than food lately. The skinny man looked horrified and was shaking violently. He recognized me and pointed to the center of the action before backing away with a frightened babble. There, in the center of the human filth, I saw him. An old, tall, and very fat man. His face turned away from me, struggled to get up with the help of his cane. His bright yellow long-sleeved shirt and khakis were covered in blood. I looked around and couldn't see anyone near him, much less an obvious assailant. I saw Aaron picking up the pace from a slow jog to a quick sprint towards us, so I cautiously broke through the ring wall. All right, everyone, just calm down. We're going to get this man medical attention. Sir? Sir? Do you need help walking? I asked as calmly as I could and hoped he didn't. That looked like a lot of blood. I heard a strange gurgle and more cracking in the people facing the man as he finally got his feet cringed and backed away. When he turned around, I could see why. There was a fat old man named Ted, who was the ringleader for a particularly scummy group. He regularly tried to get as many young girls as possible hooked in turning tricks. Red gore dripped down from his chin and everything around his mouth was smeared red. Gleaming white shards poked from between the red flow of blood from his mouth. He appeared to be grinding his teeth, using every ounce of force the muscles in his jaw could allow to force what was left of his mouth to grind together, shattering and uprooting several teeth in the process. He stared at me with a glazed-over, peaceful look. Please, please help me. Each word came out with a small spray of blood and shattered teeth fragments. Veins bulged on the sides of his head, but he had a calm, almost serene look in his eyes. 
He swung his cane forward and began to walk towards me with his hands outstretched for help. What was left in his mouth was so broken down it resembled shattered bits of porcelain draped in his own gore. He lurched towards me to take my hand while I slowly walked to him before I felt two strong arms on my shoulders yanking me back. Let's go, Aaron shouted directly into my ear and practically threw me in the other direction. I walked, slowly at first, towards the clinic door until Aaron gave me another shove and jogged past me. I saw the junkies shamble quickly to their cars at the front doors of the clinics. I heard a deep gurgle some yards behind me and picked up the pace when a scream rang out. The skinny man with black hair had been cornered by the bleeding fat man after he ran into an alcove in the strip mall across the way. He didn't realize it was a dead end, with a small concrete block corner that was frequently used by junkies for sleeping, shooting up, and turning tricks. When I reached the strip mall columns, I saw him in the tinted reflection. He had tried to move around the fat man who fell down in an attempt to grab him. I could see the front of the skinny man's shirt was covered in blood from the fat man spraying. I ran inside the clinic and tried to act normal behind the desk. As I got to the door, I forced myself not to turn my head to see a kid with something brightly colored in their hands, standing at the end of the strip mall walkway staring at me. An hour or so later, when the police one of our neighbors called finally showed up, they found the fat man crumpled in an unwindowed cement corner. I saw them dragging a bag out, but I heard later that the police were asking people if anyone hit him, because, apparently, most of the bones in his body had been broken. The tall, skinny man never got to the front door. But someone he was with was asking if anyone knew where he had gone to. Apparently, he told them happily not to worry about him and strolled right out of the parking lot instead of getting his meds and going back to Kentucky, where his family was waiting. The next day, I almost felt like praying for peace and quiet. The small hotel room was beginning to feel less unique and cool and more threatening and I checked every kid with a skateboard to see if they had a mask as well. I waited until there wasn't a hint of the nuclear colors of dawn that cover Florida and began to get ready in a small, ancient bathroom where I shaved using a razor that I had bought at Publix instead of some shitty old electric for the first time in years. I wasn't used to the sight of my face without stubble left over. I drove quickly to the clinic wanting to get the day over with. In the clinic, someone had put Stranger Than Fiction on instead of the action movies that patients typically enjoyed, and some deeply sad song was playing while Will Ferrell had a pensive, frustrated look on his face. I walked into the front office and saw Debbie waiting for me in front of the door with a second waiting room linked to the front office to everywhere else. Dave wanted to know if he could meet you tonight instead of later. Debbie confronted me out of the blue before I was able to sit down, speaking matter-of-factly. I, um, I kind of have something. It's actually really important. Could we do it tomorrow? I needed at least a little while to chew on things. He actually needs to see you tonight. She smiled pleasantly and spoke in a soft but slightly happy voice. I wondered if it was just another meeting, which wouldn't be atypical, or if I was about to die. Or maybe Chris would kill me before I even got there. 
I nodded and sat down at my desk without a word. She went to chat with Aaron about some guy who hit on her while she was on a gambling boat with Chris. Patients began to pour in when Aaron finally flipped the lock and I was safely filing useless paper. It occurred to me that it might be possible to discreetly contact authorities and maybe get some help. I remembered the name of the detective who I had read were investigating a pill mill they managed to close down south. After an hour or so, I googled the name on my phone and brought up a number. While sitting on the toilet, pretending to be horrifically constipated due to opiates, like normal, I texted a detective Juan Roa that I was working for George and needed to talk to him discreetly. I got a text back asking what time and place I would feel comfortable with and responded that tonight would be great and that I would get back to him on the location. He agreed and I flushed the empty toilet. Before I could reach the doorknob, my phone rang. It was Chris. I stared at it, disbelieving. It continued to ring, and I muted it and sat back down on the closed toilet seat. I went to the voicemail and instantly began to ring again. This was clearly happening one way or the other. Hello? Tell them to meet you at Bryant Park after sundown. Chris's sharp voice cut me off before I could even finish the word hello. It was followed by the screen on my phone telling me the call had ended. I stood up, my knees shaking and almost instantly fell down. I got back up, feeling weak and nauseous. A combination of a lack of drugs and too much supernatural shit was getting to me. After finally getting up, I threw cold water in my face repeatedly and texted Dave that I was going to be at Bryant Park, where I decided to lie and say I was staying nearby after dark. He asked if I could do it earlier, and I told him I had promised my mother something. He agreed, and I went back to the office, moving slowly and carefully. My shoulder and back ached horribly after two bad falls in a short period of time. In the front office, Aaron and Debbie stopped talking while I entered the room and looked at each other. Aaron smirked a little while Debbie looked depressed, staring down at the floor and leaving the room instead of making eye contact with me. At the end of the day, I felt weak from having been sitting terrified all day, wondering what was going to happen to me. I took a long look at the clinic before heading out to the park to wait for sunset. Chapter 9 I sat near an outdoors auditorium that bordered a small dock. There were rows of old rotted wood making benches for the crappy reggae bands that sometimes played on the weekends. More normally, the homeless used the covered stage as a home for a particularly large group that congregated during the nights. As the boats began to pull into the docks to be towed away by SUVs and trucks, the hobos began to appear, cautiously at first as if worried the sight of people with money might bring some kind of threat. Slowly, but surely, a small group of seven began to move to the auditorium, with most laying on the ground and two men watching the seawall and coast carefully, as if waiting to see something. After some time, a pair of headlights and a deep purple alerted me to a Dodge Challenger, a dark purple car I had seen Dave drive at least once before. He pulled into the small parking lot, 
looked at the homeless and motioned for me to come to him. I began walking to him and felt one of my legs shake a little, but he had a pleasant and relaxed smile on his face. He was wearing a light green shirt and dark sunglasses with orange plaid shorts. As I got closer, two massive men got out of the car. One wore a lavender-colored shirt with dark black letters spelling the name of some brand. The other, just a white tank top and black denim shorts, assumedly to show as many tattoos as possible. Both were covered in tattoos, many such as an 88 on the forehead of one and the letters HH and a shamrock on the neck of the other, which would let anyone aware of the crime world know that they were ranking members of the Aryan Brotherhood. Let me see your cell phone really quick. I thanked God that I had already deleted all my previous texts and calls other than to him and one to my mother. I handed him the phone and he removed the battery and handed it to one of his associates, who put it in the trunk of the car. It began to occur to me that even with two possible sources of backup or new problems on the way, a gunshot to the head would only take a second that I probably didn't have. Dave motioned for me to walk with him and we began to walk away from the amphitheater parking lot into a large concrete outcropping that jutted from the park on the other side of the dock. It was a small, cross-shaped fishing pier, with two side abutments that were often used by the elderly to enjoy the view of the water. Right before the top of this cross, after the four sections met, was a pavilion that used to be used as housing by the homeless. But tonight, the entire area, and the shuffleboard court in front of it, was empty. Dave and the men were completely silent as we walked towards what felt an awful lot like my doom. So, um, how's, uh, how's everything going in American? I tried to make small talk, but my voice cracked as we got to the shuffleboard courts in front of the pier. Relax. We'll talk in a second. He had a friendly ring in his voice, but there was a curtness behind it that confirmed my suspicions. We walked past the shuffleboards of the two men suddenly much closer, behind me on either side. I knew I had nowhere to run. We turned the corner and in front of the pavilion where the homeless used to sleep, between two badly dimmed lights, Chris sat on the ground, watching us. He wore a white t-shirt with white pants, but I couldn't see the details in the dark. Something dark spread around his neck in the front of his shirt. A pair of shoes was just off to his right. What I could see was the brightly colored mask in his hands. He slowly moved the mask to his face, where it stayed seemingly without anything to hang over his ears or the back of his head to keep it there. What looked like a pile of smeared gore sat on top of the pavilion, hanging just slightly in view from behind a roof turret. He stood up in a single, fluid movement, and I felt a hand on my shoulder from one of the men, stopping me from moving back. Chris began to walk, slowly but confidently towards us with what appeared to be a beautiful, translucent, light green mask that seemed to be some kind of bird. I could still see the features of his face through it, but I noticed he looked absurdly slender after he stood up. His clothes hung off him like a sail. He was walking towards us steadily, his bare feet not moving slower or faster than a casual walk. Hey, we're gonna need you to head out, buddy. Sorry, but we're gonna need this area. Dave said this quickly and turned around to face me and his friends, 
He scowled angrily. I doubted he liked being seen with me at the time, but before he could turn around to say something else, he noticed the odd look on his friend's face as Chris moved closer. Let's just go to the other pier. The skinhead in the tank top growled to Dave. Shit. Yeah. The other skinhead sounded disappointed. Dave looked at me with deep consideration. The fuck is he doing anyways? Dave turned around to see what the two were staring at, only to see Chris within about ten yards. What looked like a mask seemed to be melting into his skin. I could hear a faint ripping sound coming from him. At first, I thought it was from his mask. But he tumbled over involuntarily and it became clear that Chris's entire body was making horrible, cracking and gurgling noises. Blood poured down his neck as the edges of the mask seemed to eat into his skin. All at once, a hundred small changes seemed to work together, starting and finishing in slightly more than the blink of an eye. His jet black skin was becoming mottled, like a plucked chicken, but sated stark hue. Tears in his skin were visible here and there as it stretched to cover what seemed like much longer arms showing bones and viscera. His eyes were still visible, but the skin around them was stretched and moving. His eyes were larger than they should have been, massive orbs that seemed to move slightly away from each other. His knees snapped and popped with horrific sound, bending backwards. The flesh underneath his mask where his nose had been emitted a sickening wet crack. The beak began to move more gracefully. The three men were stunned, with the skinhead in the lavender shirt staring slack-jawed until Chris's beak opened wide at us, revealing a long, rotted tongue before shrieking. It sounded like metal tearing metal, or a fax machine going horribly wrong. He began to move faster, walking more like a stork, and I could see that his fingers had giant black hooks at their ends. Taking advantage of the lack of a hand on my shoulder, I jumped to the side into a small buildup of sand on the fake peninsula. Fuck! Dave screamed, taking a small silence 9mm from a discreet holster on his side and taking aim. An angry snapping sound came from the gun. But what was once Chris leapt at Dave and then raged chortling sound before his friends could take out their firearms. Its legs flung the thing at Dave at incredible speed, and all I saw was a bright blur and a sickening, solid-sounding smack as both Dave and Chris hit the ground right where I had been standing between his friends. Before getting up and running, I saw Dave's two friends bring out their weapons a split second after the long beak that was once a mask land on and poke through Dave's chest as easily as a syringe through the arm. It crouched over him, tearing its beak out of Dave's chest a split second after landing and bringing a spray of red gore with it. In less than a second, as his friends attempted to save their own lives, I heard a loud bang. I rather felt it. Two blinding flashes of light came from the scene and I looked away. Suddenly, I could only hear ringing and my ears hurt like hell. I got up and in what felt like an eternity, I began to run like hell away from the scene and towards the streetlights of the main road that seemed so far away. 
A splash of some warm liquid landed on my back and I decided I didn't need to know what it was. I ran as fast as a fat man possibly can run. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw something move insanely fast towards the fight and preed whatever it was would delay any surviving skinheads or Chris. My whole torso hurt, but my lungs fought to suck air in and burned worse than any bong head. I managed to get past the shuffle court and into the parking lot lights in front of the boat ramp, but couldn't see a soul there. I couldn't hear anything other than ringing, but a single bright flash of light behind me let me know it wasn't safe to slow down. I pushed myself as hard as I could and I began to run past the auditorium, thinking the homeless were probably going to do anything they could to not get involved. As I reached the edge of the auditorium, I suddenly hit a hole in the ground and fell. My mouth filled with warm, viscous blood and I let it simply fall out of my mouth rather than truly spitting. From the parking lot lights, I saw something make a silhouette on the ground coming from behind me, and I struggled to do a push-up for the first time in years to get off the ground and start moving again. Before I could even get all the way up, two pairs of bright lights pulled up with an angry roar from a side street connected to the park, and I saw someone get out of the car and point a gun at me. I put my hands up on my knees. My brain couldn't even process what I thought was going to be my death. Instead, there was nothing. I just waited, with two headlights and then a flashlight aimed directly at me. The man with a gun was a police officer. <sighs> Help! I could not hear my voice, but I felt the words falling out of my mouth along with more blood. Later on, I would find out the sound of gunshots had burned an officer who was just getting home from his shift to drive over someone's front lawn and through the wrong way of an alley to get to the sound within seconds. From the blood pouring out of my mouth, he assumed I had something to do with it and called for backup. Detective Juan Roa managed to get there for our appointment just a few minutes later. A tall, dark-haired man with pale olive skin and a youthful mustache who wore a PBSO white polo with dark green pants. He had a surprisingly uncop-like voice. He was so delighted to hear that I wanted to wear a wire and have constant police surveillance that they completely forgot to do the whole bad cop routine. They brought me to the station, got a doctor to come to us and check me out, ordering some media noche sandwiches when the doctor told me I'd only broken two teeth on one side and could still eat if I avoided it. I told an officer what I normally text like with George and Debbie, and he told them that Dave and company never made it to the drop. They were both horrified, but the police can't just arrest someone without anyone finding out, and they only found a few strings of gore, a bit of bone, and some shell casings where the fight happened. So, they were eventually just filed as missing since I declined to mention the stuff about a bird demon. They assumed a fight had broken out among them since I told them I had seen Dave raise a gun to his friend and ran away instead of walking. The next week felt great. My employer suspected a robbery since they were apparently carrying enough to make it worthwhile. They asked me plenty of questions and at times seemed worried, but eventually decided a witch hunt for whoever had robbed them was in order. Debbie and George never really did figure out why I was suddenly less wasted, more focused, and always willing to chat about business until it was too late. 
I went out in the morning again, a couple of weeks after I had a doctor give me enough benzos to sleep through the opiate withdrawals. My tolerance was pretty weak by then. There weren't any kids standing guard by my hotel, but I saw the kid with brown hair near the Publix that separated the city place from Clematis after a short walk. He stared at me inquisitively, but after a few moments seemed to lose interest. He and his friends began to move in a pod towards the Dreyfus School of Arts, a selective high school. After that, I started taking morning walks, slowly, but then more regularly. Plenty of weird shit happened in the clinic, and I usually just kept my head down, but nothing ever bothered me directly again. At least, none of those bird things. I decided to never call Chris again, but I did contact Grace, who will use this account with Jessica later. Some legal changes have occurred in Florida, and at the time I'm writing this, there's a significant chance the pill mills may return in full force. They seem to think a lot of the horrible shit that became common back then might be coming back. You've been listening to The Pill Mills, written by Scott Wilson. Scott Wilson was born in Seattle, Washington, and raised in West Palm Beach, Florida. When he is not penning tales of terror, he enjoys kayaking and hiking in addition to reading and writing. Wilson loves exploring historical places in his general area, especially anything pre-colonial, and loves reading historical nonfiction. His personal favorite writers are Stephen King, Laird Barron, and Philip K. Dick. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by yours truly. Jason Hill. Additional performers have been featured when necessary to bring the tales to life. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respected authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Luke Hodgkinson under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's artwork and logo by Jason Hill. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure that you never miss an episode. And please... Leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Thursday. 
And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button too to tell us how we're doing. Oh, and if you could, please leave a kind word or even a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for more than 500 free audio horror stories, including more performance from yours truly, and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Thursday with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, this is Jason Hill. Good evening. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.